Amen. Good morning. <clears throat> I'm so excited about the Christmas offering this year and these amazing projects that we are going to focus on. Uh, but Tirza has a special place in my heart. Um, as you just heard, I got to go with the team to India and uh, meet Dr. Lavanya in person and these other just phenomenal female leaders. And it was a very uh, life-changing experience, uh, to say the least. Um, we'll be sharing more videos that I was able to take while I was there, and I'll write up some blogs, and that will be coming out online in the coming weeks. But I wanted to share with you all this morning just one highlight of my trip to India, and that was experiencing an all-female trip. No offense to you guys, um, but wow, an all-female trip focused on female leaders overseas, empowering their teams of women, traveling as a group of women, ministering to each other as women, seeing and experiencing the world with a group of women. As a woman, I have never experienced something so rich. And I want to bring that opportunity to you women here at Pulpit Rock Church. Jessica and I have already started conversations about that. We're going to be working on that in the future. Um, it truly was life-changing for me. You know, going on a trip like that, uh, we, we Christians in our church circles, we call that stuff mission trips usually. Going on a mission trip is so good for us for so many reasons. I want to highlight two. It's good for us to go and see the diverse ways that our God works. If we never left the familiarity of our daily lives, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our Sunday services, what we're doing right now, we're in danger of just falling into habits around the way we experience our faith. Now, good habits, but those habitual rhythms, even if they're good, can sort of lull us to sleep spiritually. We know exactly what to expect when we show up at church. We know exactly how God has been present around us in the past, so we just expect those same experiences with God in the future. We can kind of begin to do some sleepwalking spiritually. And wow, what a tragedy that is for us to lose any ounce of just absolute awe and wonder at our God and how he moves and how he uses us and the people around us. It's also really good for us to be kind of forced outside of ourselves, snapped awake from our sleepwalking, personally, emotionally, spiritually. Mission trips do that. I've been privileged enough to go on mission trips for a lot of my life. Sometimes in the city I live in, sometimes out of town or out of state, sometimes traveling literally to the other side of the planet, and I've experienced that enough to know there comes that moment when I'm totally forced outside of myself. I've been physically moved away from all the familiar things for a few days, and it's like my spirit finally catches up, and I have this moment of being snapped awake from the lull of my faith rhythms, my emotional rhythms. And that moment is usually not pleasant at first. It usually involves some thoughts like, what on earth was I thinking coming to India for 12 days? How many days are left? I don't know if I'm going to make it. It's really hot. There's some discomfort when we are forcefully pulled from our sweet and comfortable slumber. 
whether that's around our faith or our emotional life or our physical life or just the coping mechanisms we have that we use every day. Today, as we continue in Acts, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, to be exact, and we're going to revisit a few days of the apostles' journey, and you could totally say they were on a mission trip. At this point, they've witnessed some things that have changed them forever. They've experienced some things that they simply cannot help but proclaim. They've been snapped awake. They don't want to return to a life of sleepwalking. They can't. And I think as we revisit this portion of their journey, we will witness some things that have the ability to pull us out of ourselves and wake us up from our sleepwalking. Perhaps without even leaving this room this morning, we can experience together that thing that mission trips can so often offer us, that forced wake-up call out of the familiar rhythms that we have in our faith journeys and how we think about and see God. So word is spreading about Jesus and about the apostles' message as they travel and teach. We heard last week that people were bringing the sick to the streets, just hoping that Peter's shadow would fall across them as he walked by and heal them. And that was happening. And the chief priest has been seriously provoked by all of this, as well as a group called the Sadducees, who were on his side. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public jail. And here is our first prompt to be pulled awake from our slumber this morning. As believers, when we read about these experiences that the early Christians had, we pretty quickly place ourselves as being in their shoes, right? Like without much thought, if you were asked to immediately answer, who are you in these stories? If you were to place yourself as one of these characters, our knee-jerk response would be to see ourselves as the Christians. We're the apostles. We're being persecuted for following Jesus. We're the ones in jail being mistreated. We talked about this two weeks ago, our perspective on persecution. And Jonathan lovingly reminded us that our version of persecution here in America today is really usually just an instance of the world criticizing us. We Christians aren't as whimsical as Jesus was about things, believe it or not. We can be jerks sometimes. And we're hearing the world say to us a lot these days, hey, those values that you have, they don't look as moving to me as they do to you, especially when you say it that way. And we're like, oh, it's the modern day version of the apostles being thrown in jail. Can we collectively force ourselves outside of that sleepy way of thinking this morning? Church, if we're to look for ourselves in this story, we are much more likely to be the group of religious people who are feeling threatened. We're the Sadducees more often than not. They're trying to defend their faith to defend their institution, the way they've always done things. They're comfortable, they're knowledgeable, they know each other. They meet together all the time to talk about religion and the right ways that it should be done. They've figured out some formulas for this thing, and that has created some serious security. And they just want to protect that. I get it. 
And then these guys who are uneducated and look and act and think differently than them are showing up and claiming the same God, and they are not doing the things the way they've always been done. And that feels really threatening to these religious leaders. It's amazing how off track we believers can get when we feel the need to defend our God and the ways we think the God stuff should be done or who should or shouldn't be able to do the God stuff. And in our own modern and metaphorical way, we throw people in jail over it. And it really does always boil down to us criticizing or judging someone else, doesn't it? But we attach that criticism or judgment to a scripture verse, and then we're set. Beyond that, it's our love for God and his word that's our motivation. Well, the Sadducees loved God so hard that they had the apostles thrown in jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. There's a couple of awesome opportunities for us to be pulled from our sleepiness in just these two verses. Luke just gets right to it here. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he describes this absolute miracle of an angel being coming to earth to rescue the apostles in just two sentences here. And in his first sentence, he just gets right to the point. The Lord has secured these followers' release. The work is done. They're free, not on their own effort, but because of God, the prison doors have been flown open. It sounds a lot like the work of Jesus on the cross. The work Jesus did for anyone that you or I might ever throw in jail with our quick judgments and lock the doors on who they are or how they're trying to follow Jesus. There are no locked doors in the kingdom of God. We need that reminder. To not try to confine what God might be doing. I love that, but I love this next line even more. This angel messenger says, go back to the temple and tell the people all about this new life, or in some versions, the whole message of this life. Like One of the fascinating things about Acts is that nobody knew what to call this movement. It wasn't called Christianity for quite some time. Later on, it's referred to as the way, which is super cool because it's like the Mandalorian. It's the way. This angel calls it this life. Like even the angels seem to have a hard time putting a descriptive finger on this thing. How do you explain an entirely new way of living, this upside down kingdom? No one had ever seen anyone living this way before. This was extraordinarily challenging for the Sadducees, for people like me, maybe some of you, who had grown up around this religion and thought they genuinely knew all the ins and outs, that they'd figured it all out. And then this new way of life, it went well beyond the temple walls, which was where the Sadducees had confined everything up until this point. It was nice and tidy and very easy to explain within the temple walls. 
this new way of life meant living as a family with everyone who shared your belief in Jesus. Not just with people who shared your belief in Jesus, plus also your beliefs on baptism. Not just with people who shared your belief in Jesus, plus also your beliefs on gender equality in the church. Not just with people who shared your belief in Jesus, plus also your beliefs on sexuality. This way of life, that no one seems to be able to explain in further detail using words, is some kind of radical way of life that meant love and acceptance with everyone who was also trying to follow Jesus. Just that. That was the only qualifier. Well, that sounded crazy, and it's this huge mystery to everyone who is witnessing this. It's awe-inspiring. God, help us to reconnect to that absolute wonder of what your love actually is. I made a new best friend when we went on this trip to India together, and whether she liked it or not, exactly 17 hours into a 12-day trip, I called it. I said, we're best friends now. You know that, right? She was like, okay. We logged a lot of travel hours on planes and buses, which meant a lot of conversation. And at one point in our journey, we're on the bus driving somewhere, and she's telling me how sort of beat down she feels by a Christian friend of hers. She was telling me this friend is always challenging her on all of these things that lie outside of belief in Jesus, you know, those things we Christians tend to get really defensive and judgmental over. And my friend sat next to me on the bus, like totally heartbroken, and said, she just tells me I'm watering down Christianity when I believe something different than what she's already subscribed to as the one way to be a Christian. And I just felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. And before I could complete the thought, I just said out loud, she's the one watering it down. She's the one watering it down, not you. This way of life is a mystery. This is love and action that can't be explained. How dare we draw it up into a formula and then hold that up to millions of different people and expect it to be fleshed out in exactly the same ways. Can we let these verses snap us out of our sleepwalking faith and get back to the roots of this movement when even the angels didn't really know what to call it yet because it was just so radically about living and loving like Jesus? At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began teaching the people. This is the apostles. They've just been um, released from the prison by the angel. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and they sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them for it. 
The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I was pretty thick on the sarcasm there. I hope you picked up on that. I think this scene is really funny, and I I don't want us to miss the humor to be seen in this. Like, these are all the guys in charge. The Sanhedrin was the entire group of the elders. The full assembly is all gathered in the temple courts. Like, these are really formal guys in a really formal place. This is serious business, okay? And so I brought a very serious picture of what this may have looked like. This is an eyewitness account. (laughs) That's a lot of dudes. That's a lot of beards. I do like the beards. I think those are cool. A lot of robes. Sometimes they wear big hats and they like put the robe up over their hat for some reason. Um, There's a lot of fire. That's kind of ominous. Um, The weirdest thing in this picture to me is the scepters. I think that's what those are called. It's like a wand slash staff. Like, I don't know what that's for. All these important guys, they've shuffled into the room, ready to begin. And I imagine someone very important is like, bring in the prisoners, and like slams a gavel. Here comes this jail captain who has just found the prison empty. And I imagine he kind of comes in there a little nervous. Yeah, so um, the doors are all locked, you know, just like we do around here, locked up tight. So that's good. Um, the guards are all still there. Everybody showed up for their shift last night. We're fully staffed, so that's really good. No issues there. But uh, the apostles are gone. <clears throat> and they're like, what? Speak up, son. He's like, they're gone. I don't know where they are. Yeah, he probably just splits. And then there's Joe Blow bystander who's like, look, they're over there on the other side of the temple courts, and they're teaching. And they're like, oh, my gosh, go grab them. But take it easy. We don't want anyone to, like, stone us. So finally, everyone is brought in where they should be, all the apostles accounted for, and the high priest gives them a talking to. We told you not to teach in this name. They won't even say the name of Jesus. You're doing it anyway. And even beyond that, you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. It's important to acknowledge the escalation of the accusations Not only were the apostles being disobedient, they are laying blame at the feet of these religious rulers. They are claiming you are responsible for taking Jesus' life. Just even more in your face, as far as the authorities were concerned. What had happened so far was enough for these leaders to regard this movement as a direct threat to their status, their power, their importance, But they, of course, have said it differently. They have said it was a direct threat to the honor of God and the proper reverence for God's house, the temple. Again, there is this tendency to hide really ugly motives behind the disguise of defending God. This tendency to try to confine what God is doing out of uncertainty of how it's playing out. This tendency that we have, church, for our focus to be drawn towards comprehending a potential threat over focusing on comprehending the mission and the kingdom of Jesus. 
Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is a bold response by Peter and the apostles. Peter talks about what they have witnessed, that the Holy Spirit is given to anyone who obeys God. Who ultimately has the authority if the Holy Spirit is given to anyone who obeys God? Can we let ourselves be snapped out of some sleepwalking faith by something here? Peter is saying, The Holy Spirit is a gift given to anyone who obeys God. And we may automatically think, well, that means we don't get the Holy Spirit until we have it all figured out and are doing it perfectly, or at least we're trying to, right? Like, isn't that what obedience looks like? The Pharisees believed in that effort. They had all kinds of rules you had to obey to follow God. Earlier, before Jesus had died... John records the story of the feeding of the 5,000, of Jesus walking on water, and then right after that, in John 6, 25, some people catch up to Jesus, and they ask him, quite literally, what must we do to obey God? What must we do to obey God? Jesus' answer? Believe in the one God sent. Jesus didn't say anything else. So Peter is saying here that the Holy Spirit is given to anyone when they believe. The moment they believe in Jesus. That's the obedience he's talking about. The Holy Spirit is a gift to all when they believe in Jesus. It's not a gift to all when they believe in Jesus plus when they start making better choices. The Holy Spirit is not a gift to all when they believe in Jesus, plus when they start attending church regularly. The Holy Spirit is not a gift to all when they believe in Jesus, plus when they identify their sexuality correctly so that we can all collectively affirm it. Which, by the way, there is not one version of sexuality represented in this room today that we should all collectively affirm because we are all falling short. We're all falling short. The Holy Spirit is in each one of us from the moment we believe in Jesus plus nothing. When the religious leaders heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put the apostles to death. This is pulling the rug of authority out from underneath the Pharisees' feet. And authority, church, is something we really wrestle with. That word really gets us going. I would venture to say sometimes to the point of being furious. We love to say the Bible is authoritative. But I think where our mind goes with that word, when we are sleepwalking in our faith is not the place our Savior leads us when he uses that word. 
One excellent place to begin is with something Jesus himself said about the nature of authority. Pagan rulers, he said, lord it over their subjects. But it can't be that way with you. The Pharisees were misinterpreting this authority they thought they were given from God. Church, we are given authority from God. But can we snap out of our sleepy version of what we think that means? The authority given to us is the authority to say, we all fall short, but you are not condemned and neither am I. The authority given to us is the authority to fling locked doors open for others and for ourselves. The authority to know and trust that the Holy Spirit present in Jesus of Nazareth is present in the believer trying to live life next to you. That they're working some things out together, just like we are working some things out together. And praise God, by the authority of Jesus given to us, we know that that work is not complete. We can be confident that he who began that good work is carrying it on to completion. The religious authority cannot take this. They cannot tolerate it, and now they want these guys dead. And what follows is fascinating, because this non-Christian named Gamaliel, who was honored by all people, stood up and intervened in that moment. And he gave a really impactful speech and ultimately persuaded the authorities that they were too focused on a perceived threat. He basically says, hey, there's some wisdom in taking a step back from taking an action when that action could be against God. Like, we're uncertain if this is God working through these guys or not. If you're unsure, maybe don't take the action. Because if it turns out to be just a human thing, after all, it's not going to last. Almighty God doesn't need us to run interference for him. He says, but if this is a God thing happening here, it won't be stopped. Maybe we should just wait and see and exercise some restraint and some trust before choosing a side. I don't think that's the last time we have seen the wise action of a non-believer model something incredibly Christ-like for us. He convinces the Sanhedrin to let them go. The apostles get flogged first, which was no minor beating. People died from that sentence back in that day. But the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The Spirit of God is calling us, wanting to pull us awake out of our sleepwalking ways of thinking about our faith, we get lulled to sleep. Maybe we're lulled to sleep by the way we were raised, just comfortable and familiar with the religious systems around us. Maybe we're lulled to sleep by our busyness. There's a lot of honorable things we're taking care of. My job, my family, my finances. Maybe you just got your head down working hard at life. Maybe you're lulled into a sleepwalking faith by some anger that you have at God or somebody else. 
Sometimes I don't want to check in with my heart about how I'm doing. Like, that's hard work. That wakes you up for sure. If you've ever begun that journey inward, like, you can't help but be wide-eyed and awake. Sleepwalking in our faith, it just confines what wild wonder Jesus is trying to cultivate in us as he brings about his kingdom around us. When we allow things to confine the work that God wants to do in us or in others, it keeps us all from being who we're meant to be. While we were out on this land that Dr. Lavanya and her team are building the new clinic on, with our help, you guys gave to that project last Christmas offering, um, I walked up to Rachel, one of Lavanya's daughters, who was sharing some of her life story with Jessica. And it was this beautiful moment. Um, Rachel was saying how uh, she was raised in Hyderabad, which is a huge city. Um, you guys, India has like a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people in it. It's a very crowded place. Um, in fact, it has 171 people per square mile in their country. That sounds like a lot, I guess. I like to try to think about a square mile. For comparison, the United States has 13 people per square mile. India has 171 per square mile. This is a crowded place. Hyderabad is a huge city. We went to see the house that, that Rachel was talking about. This is like people on top of people on top of people, homes on top of homes on top of buildings on top of businesses. Like the streets are this narrow and they're all packed with people. And she's saying, yeah, that's where I was raised. It's pretty confining. Um, my big family in a tiny house in this huge city with tons of people. Um, I just... I was always very meek and quiet. I was always very small. I felt small. And kind of thought, that's just who I am. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're out here on this land where, like, you kind of have to strain to see another structure. It's like a farm. And she stays out at the little house that's out there sometimes. And she says, when I'm out here, I start to feel a little different. She said, yesterday there was this torrential downpour and the rain was so loud, and the lightning and thunder was so loud. And she said, I take advantage of those storms. When it's loud like that, I go out into the field, and I just shout. I just praise God for who I know him to be. I claim those promises he's made that I have yet to see. Sometimes I get angry, I shout at him, and I praise him, and I lose my voice. She's like, out here, I realize God made me bold. That's who I am. I'm bold. Not everyone can go to India or on a mission trip. But we all experience what Rachel experienced. Realizing we've allowed something beautiful that God is trying to grow inside of us to be confined. There's a wildness and a wonder to the kingdom of God that exists outside of the things we let confine us. And we're learning that the things of God can't be stopped. They can't be confined by the busyness of a huge city or by the lies we believe about ourselves or by sadness or anger or unforgiveness. This might be the first time I've ever said this, but maybe we should take a lesson from one of the religious leaders here in the Bible, Gamaliel. He had faith that if it was just human stuff, it wouldn't last. He knew that if it was God's stuff, 
It was going to come to fruition. It couldn't be stopped. There are those that attempt to confine what God is doing by protecting or defending God or by focusing on a perceived threat or by lulling ourselves to sleep because being wide awake feels too painful. When this new way of life could expand and grow beyond what we would ever expect should confine it. The Holy Spirit is here, ready to lead you somewhere right now. Let's listen. Listen. 